and welcome to episode 25 of Design EDU Today, the podcast series discussing topics concerning the state of interactive design education at institutions of higher learning. I am your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Today's guest is Sabella Flagg. Sabella began building websites at age 11 on a wheezing Packard Bell and hasn't looked back. Now, Sabella is an interactive designer at Artifact, an award-winning digital experience innovation company located in Seattle, Washington. Sabella's current responsibilities include creating concepts, wireframes, and design for services and digital products along with front-end development. Her work is influenced by a background in traditional art, and she has gotten quite good at translating between designers and developers. Sabella believes the purpose of design is to identify a problem, then provide an elegant solution that solves it. This is the standard Sabella works towards on every project. Welcome, Sabella. Hi. Hi. Um, all right, so I have lots of questions for you, but let's start at the very beginning. Okay. Um, how did you get interested in building websites at the age of 11? So um, I was lucky enough to grow up with a pretty computer-savvy mom. Uh, she went to school for computer sciences, and while she's an accountant now, uh, we grew up kind of learning to take things apart and fix them ourselves. In fact, when we got our first computer, which is that wheezing Packard Bell, when I took it with me, when I took my own tower with me to school a little bit later on, uh, she like refused to help me put it together, so it was very much like a figure it out on your own type of household, and I've, I've carried that with me. Uh, and I'll start with, you know, you, you're, you're on AOL, because that's what you had back then, and you're, you're learning this new thing called the internet, and you're seeing all these new things, and I, I was just really curious. I, I'm like, I want to know how they are doing this. And it, it, was, it was a bit of just like, let's tear this apart and see if I can build it on my own. And I, I love that because my first computer was a Packard Bell, <laughs> um, and you know, getting the getting the modem in there and just seeing if I can get the darn thing to connect to the internet before there was AOL. I mean, it was <laughs> yeah, it, it was it was pretty fun. Um, but you know, more specifically, what interested you most at the first when it came to web design? Was it the visual side of it, or was it the development and coding side of it? I'd have to say it definitely was not the visual side to start. <laughs> like, internet, early 90s, not the most visually appealing thing. Um, but it, it felt like magic and a big puzzle. And I'm like, I know there's something behind this thing called a web page, and I kind of want to understand what's making it, what's making it work. Um, and actually, part of that, I, I started, uh, once I realized that I could... <laughs> This is going to sound bad. Once I realized I could see what was behind the website, so if you think of server structure and folders that weren't secured, I think of just how security was pretty basic back mm -hmm. then, and realized, like, oh, look, this stuff isn't on the website, and I can, I can see it, like, hacking 1.0 um, and investigating in that way and then turning it over. It's like, you know, I want to build something. I want to see. I want to tinker with it. I want to see what I can do with it. Um, I'd say the back end interests me the most at first, and then it became 
as the visuals kind of grew and your ability and what you could do with the web crew, my interest in the visual side of it grew as well. Yeah, and and a re another reason why I was so excited to talk to you because that was actually my first experiences was I built a website not because I cared how it looked, but I just wanted to make this thing. I just wanted to make this thing that lived out there that anybody could see. Yeah. It, it wasn't until somebody actually, a former employer who is who wanted me to make the website for the company, but he's like, man, your websites look terrible because I hadn't gone to school for design. And I was like, oh, all right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like <laughs> I, um, I remember my first website was built on GeoCities, and it was all yes. about anime. And I was super excited to finish it, and I showed my mom, and she was like a very lackluster response <laughs> <laughs> because it visually was not. She'd seen at that point I'd been doing a lot more traditional art, so she'd seen my my paintings and my drawings, and it just it wasn't translating over <laughs> into this new technology. So just kind of like carrying that. My mom has influenced a lot of my life, <laughs> so carrying that with me, and like we can make we can always make this better. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. I, I actually now this just got the idea that I, I really would like to go back to the previous guests and ask them at what point did they get started on the internet? Because we never actually talked about it. You're the first one who openly says, this is when I got started. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I never thought to ask, but that's someone I have to go back and investigate. All right. So what led you to Drake University and getting a Bachelor of Fine Arts? And was it in graphic design that you got? It your... was. Okay. I have, a, I have a BFA in uh, graphic design. So at that point, so I, I was born and raised in Chicago. I'd mm -hmm. been in Chicago my entire life at that point, And I decided I was tired of Chicago. So I, I visited quite a few uh, different schools and universities and was trying to really decide what I wanted to do. Um, art had always been a very important part of my life, but so had fashion, so had writing, so had... Um, you know, I was really interested in weather and wanted to and still want to be a storm chaser one day. And mm -hmm. I, I just had so many interests. I really had to pin down what it was I wanted to do. Luckily, I went to a high school that spent most of its resources in art and design. So I got to really dive deep into it, but doing some pretty advanced stuff early on. And that was my first time thinking like, oh, wow, I can actually combine this technical side of me and this artistic side of me and make a career out of it. It's called graphic design and it's blowing up in these ways. Maybe I should focus on that. Uh, Drake University, out of all the colleges I visited, was the only place where I really felt like I was at home. Mm -hmm. And they seemed to be really trying to keep up, keep up with the way that technology was changing. Because at that time, a lot of the graphic design programs were still like using PageMaker and were very print focused and since I had been an internet kid I you know I'm like this thing's growing we aren't going to be only focused on print and Drake recognized that um, and also just something very simple of like I met the professors like the professors took us on a tour and and sat down and talked to us and wanted to know more about us and it just felt it kind of felt instantly like home and I didn't really get that feeling from many of the other places I, I visited or got accepted to. So, uh, yeah, Drake University was, was where it was at. I, and so this podcast is meant for design faculty. So I do want, I also want to share one other antidote is that I, I went to an unnamed school and I had to 
kind of go a really long way and I didn't have any faculty greet me and mm-hmm. I nothing. And I was like, really? I mean, <laughs> I'm not expecting the red carpet, but just, Hey, yeah. how are you doing? How is your, thanks for coming. And yeah, so that, that's a big turnoff when the faculty don't engage with those um, incoming students. Yeah. It's a, it's a really Potential. small step that, that goes very far. Yeah. Um, so, Oh, what was the, I, I lived in Chicago for a few years as well. What was the name of the school? If you don't mind me asking the high school, I'm just curious. So for, I did high school in the suburbs of Chicago. So okay. I'm going to Hoffman Estates high school. Oh, I've never uh, heard that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's kind of like a, it's kind of a struggle to find really good schools in the city, and at that point, we ended up moving out to to the burbs. And mm-hmm. the way the schools are set out there is that a, a large part of their budgets will be set towards different things. So some schools they have a lot larger budget for math or a lot larger budget for science. And I just happened to live in the suburb that had the high school that had a really good budget for art. I'm not sure if that's true if those things are true now, but uh, back then I really uh, left out and choosing the right high school. No, and I know this because my wife taught in the public school system in in Chicago. And yes, schools will, while they do everything, some will hang their hat on mathematics or writing or, or art or, you know, anything else. Yeah. So it's, it hasn't changed. Um, (laughs) So you, you went to, so you went to Drake um, and you, and you got a degree in, in graphic design, but you also took lithographic printmaking was that your concentration or was that was that in addition or was that the primary focus that was my concentration and there okay. there comes a point where you could you can stop taking those additional classes um and then it just stays your concentration but i kept going which is why i have a, a minor in it okay um yeah it's it i i'm really astounded that i was able to even take that class yeah. Uh, out of the things we could have done, I thought I thought painting was going to be my concentration because I had been doing it my entire life. But something about the, I mean, lithographic printmaking, it's it's hard work. There's a, a process to it. Um, sometimes you're not even sure what you're going to get at the end. It really takes a lot of practice. Um, it's hard, like physical manual work mm-hmm. too. You know, rolling out and grinding the stones. And I, some people don't like that, and I, I loved it. No, it's I do letterpress and it's it's not it, it's different but it's it's therapeutic <laughs> it is it is some people would run the track when they were like stressed or like mm-hmm. needed a break from school and you would just find me in the <laughs> in the print studio um do you think any of that process is um of doing letter um of doing uh, lithography or any of the printing do you think that any of that bled over into interactive or interaction design at all like some methodologies or anything you took from it I think it does I think doing some just doing something that has a process you set up your mind to think in that way Mm -hmm. and I find that it keeps me more organized if I know there's a way to start not saying that's the way you're gonna finish but if you know like okay there's a baseline of how I should possibly do these things and then you can tweak and change it based on the situation but just knowing how to start gives you a, a much better advantage than kind of, you know, swimming through the possibility of everything all the time. Okay. Um, yeah, like one of the reasons I, I asked that is I keep, I've been really like lately thinking about HTML and CSS. And uh, to me, I'm, I'm thinking of them as like a medium like silk screening or a medium like 
letterpress. Um, if you know the medium of HTML and CSS, you can really manipulate it. Um, and I, I'm just starting to, I, I just see that kind of parallel the more yeah. I thought about it. Um, For sure. Okay. Uh, so your, um, your formal education, um, it, even though it sounds like they were, you know, ahead of the curve when it came to, you know, web and interactive design, but you're, you're, you graduated before there was the term responsive design. Um, <laughs> you, you graduated before, you know, I, the terms UX and UI really became um, commonplace. Yeah. So what from your formal education, you know, do you really see that was like really beneficial to have that really helped you, you know, when it comes to responsive design and when it, it comes to UX and, and UI? I find the the same problems I have when I'm coding something and when I'm designing something, the, the path that I go on, they're very similar. And I, I think the one thing that my formal education helped me to do, and this is something that you also just learn with experience, is knowing when to let an idea go. <laughs> um, especially when it comes to responsive design, if you just think about, you know, you have something in the desktop view, you want to make all these things for mobile, and you just have to know when, what features or functionality do I need to let go in certain states? And you have to learn to be okay with that. You also have to know when an I when yeah, when an idea is just gonna turn into a dead end. And that just comes from it comes from a lot of practice. You get that in school, you get that with experience. Um, that's probably the the biggest thing that uh, has helped me or has translated over into my interaction design. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump ahead and come back to some other questions because what that what you just said kind of uh, it leads to me. Um, so right now I'm currently personally at a crossroad in what I teach in the classroom. I've been teaching heavy HTML and CSS, uh, just not so students could code, but mm -hmm. so they could critique their designs on a real device. And however, the learning curve for HTML and CSS is, um, it's it's quite steep. I mean, for them to be able to get to that point where they can get a functional prototype going. Yeah. yeah. So this semester, I had students use Sketch and Envision or Adobe Experience Design um, mm -hmm. to create and test prototypes. But, you know, that process really doesn't do responsive design justice. So... Um, how do you manage that? I mean, do you, how do you manage knowing like those middle states when they work or when they don't work? If it's, you know, if it's from experience that you, how do you get that experience? <laughs> <guess Yeah>. <laughs> besides, besides building a lot, a lot of yeah. things, I think, yeah, I, I, I really love, um, I really love this new, not new, but like the interest that designers have to, to learn to code if they don't already know how to code because it is so valuable just to know the limits of your designs based on the devices that they'll be on. Maybe even if you start working with clients, like just know what the budget is, right? You could mm -hmm. design something crazy and get a development team to make it happen maybe in seven months and with a large budget. But if your budget's not that and if your time's not that, you have to really understand what the mechanics are going to be to make your design come to life. And I find those the touch points that you get 
using like sketch or or envision um, are I find them super helpful just to see just where the flow could be. I actually find the way that projects are are set up to kind of be more of an issue um, when it comes to responsive design, mostly with where people focus. So if you're in the beginning, most people focused on desktop because that's what most people were using. And yeah. then we started using more mobile devices and now everyone's saying, like, oh, design for mobile first. And those sort of things... Uh, I don't want to call them like development trends, but you know how you know people mm -hmm. kind of sway one way or the other. And I, I was one of those people. I'm like, hey, cool. Let's let's try this mobile design uh, a way of working to fix this problem. And what I found is the actual problem is people just don't dedicate enough time to investigate either of those. So when you're designing for desktop only, you're leaving 10% of your project to get it all together for mobile. And sometimes that you know leads over into development as well. When you design for mobile, you have the opposite problem where 10% of your time is set for desktop. So now you have these websites or even these applications that just kind of feel really funky on the desktop. I don't know if you've like opened up an application or a website recently and been like, I feel like I should look at this on my phone because it's really hard to navigate in this view. That's an example of something that was designed not, that's not, they weren't designing for your screen. Uh, equal amount of time they're designing for another screen. So I, I think it's more important to dedicate equal amount of time to investigate. Let's investigate small screens. Let's investigate larger screens. Let's do them both thoroughly so that it's a pleasant experience as you're moving from one into the other. Because right now I'm seeing a lot of, there's, there's still tension. There's still tension there that, that is really hard for tools on their own to solve. Yeah, because that, that's the where I'm just kind of stuck beating my head is that middle state like the break points <laughs> where do you do, i mean you, it unless you do it in code mm -hmm. i i just unless i'm doing it wrong or i just don't understand the process which could be very well i just don't see how you determine where the optimal line reading level for a breakpoint would be when you're using something like envision right right you, I, I just don't. And so the only way to, for the me that I understand is like, I have to, I, I code that, then I can see where the breakpoints and then I can spend time, you know, like you said, and I, um, designing to that point. Yeah. And I think the, the combination, having a developer and a designer work together on something is so crucial because the designer can't spend their entire time designing for every single device every single breakpoint yeah. because those are things that can be solved in code but it's going to take them longer to code it because they're not a coder so if you can design the optimal view for each like small middle large like get those down start removing features that aren't needed start moving thing or the order of things around as they you know make sense as you move through the sizes and then get your developer in or get your development team in and have them take a look at it and as they're as they're coding it, like you shouldn't be afraid, they or they shouldn't be afraid to come to you and say, like, hey, I know you designed it in this way, but it's actually causing these sorts of problems, or hey, we're actually designing for an audience that's using an older browser, so I can't really use these, you know, these mix-ins to help me to reorder things or whatever the issues could be. There there shouldn't be um, any fear there to modify mm -hmm. once it once it moves into production. You know, it's kind of like you want to design a shoe, the way I draw it 
is gonna it's always gonna look different than the way it looks when I actually get it from the factory factory and that shouldn't be a thing to be afraid of I think the the life of pixel perfect mm-hmm. um, design uh, has passed yeah. because it's it's not feasible for a world where we have a large range of devices no that you know that that makes perfect sense um, so two questions. Um, hopefully I remember the second one. Uh, but the, the first one is, is, is kind of a more of an observation. I've never, I've never, I've all, I've gone to mobile sites, you know, I've gone to sites on my, on a, on my phone or whatever. And I've, you're right. I noticed right away that they didn't fully think out this, um, they didn't think out this experience fully, mm-hmm. but I've never actually stopped and looked at you know, since now we're there's the big industry push for mobile first. I haven't stopped and really like analyzed poor, large format experiences and see if they are better at the, at the smaller size. Yeah. So that's some I'm gonna I'm definitely gonna tell my students right away. It's like okay, like look for that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, the biggest indicator for desktop is if you have gigantic buttons, <laughs> gigantic full width buttons for no reason. Like my screen is nineteen like like nineteen hundred across, and this button is gigantic. Like that's a that's a clear indicator. Or even recently with um, Adobe, yeah, when they they came out with their new suite. Just seeing the responses from designers about like how hard it was to navigate on Adobe Acrobat on your desktop and being like, was this made mobile first? And like, oh yeah, no, that that was their focus this time around. Like it's supposed to be really easy to use on these smaller devices, but it's kind of clunky on the desktop. <laughs> I, I I should be ashamed of myself, but you're right. I I remember I remember that update coming out. I was like, what did they do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like they pulled the rug out from underneath me. Yeah. Um. So. Well, that's a great observation. Uh, so the next question, so the, the, the other question was then, yes, um, I firmly believe designers should be, you know, working, you know, alongside um, developers, not, you know, like not the waterfall, but the agile process. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do you, I mean, so you've, you've gone to school. I mean, how do you replicate that in a design program? Knowing like the limitations that, you know, it's kind of hard to get another, yeah, to get a, you know, get somebody in computer sciences to, you know, if they have a class, I mean, have you like, like, do you have any suggestions for us <laughs> educators and how we can replicate that in the classroom? I, I would say, so for, for my process, I tend to focus, so I start with the wireframes and I tend to focus on information first. Mm-hmm. So what, what is the, the biggest or the top things that you need the user to learn? What, what are things they need to interact with immediately and design for that first? Because I, I find that if you don't think about your information hierarchy, you kind of get stuck in this like, oh, well, I would ideally like this paragraph to be two lines long. It's like, well, actually, this is a really important part. The website is, should be this long. And then you design after that. And then... Moving once you know which features are the most important, and as you move into other sizes, I test a lot. Like mm-hmm. I have my phone, I have my tablet. I'm tweaking things. Um, I don't think a designer, if something looks drastically different on mobile than desktop, but is a flawless experience on both of those, that's not a problem for me. I think mm-hmm. when you when people get stuck on, oh, it has to look exactly the same on all of them. They're not the same devices. They don't have to look exactly the same. They should be cohesive, 
and it should feel like a fluent uh, experience. But as you're testing things, don't be afraid like, hey, I'm, I put this button here for tablet and on mobile, it completely disappears. I need to kind of, I need to reshuffle these things in this view and that's okay. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the wireframes and the, and the importance of the, you know, designing for the information. Um, how do you, okay, so as an educator, I'm going to mm -hmm. hand, I'm probably going to hand the students the, the content and I'm kind of telling them, you know, what content is most important, mm -hmm. but that's really not replicating how it is in the actual industry. I mean, it, it's kind of taking away that discovery phase. Yeah. Um, so like, what is that discovery phase? How do you, you know, work with the client to say, Hey, what, you know, how do you determine what information is most important? I mean, in a nutshell, I guess. Yeah. It, uh, one thing my traditional, I guess, graphic design, um, traditional educational back, backbone gave, gives me, uh, is, I love to sketch. <laughs> I love to make really small sketches. I can trace this all the way back to my type one class where we had to make just pages and pages and pages and pages of, of sketches. Um, and so that's when I'm in a meeting with someone and they start talking about how something looks, I start putting them down in a box. Like I draw what the shape of the thing is going to be and I start placing it and start getting some, some ideas down. And I guess working in the innovation field, it's really helpful that we have access to strategists and researchers and other types of designers and what it really boils down to is everyone is just asking questions and if I guess on our on my end if a client says they want a and we go back and do research we look at what the market is now we look what users are saying now and users are saying they want Z you can't be afraid to come back to them and say we understand you want a maybe here's a view of what a looks like just really quick Z is actually what people want and what people need. Here's what that looks like. And here's what this is going to do for you, which is even more important. You can't just switch things 360 and not, not say why that change is important. Um, I think uh, with design programs that I'm seeing now, they're, and they're working in the way that, that you're saying where you're given almost like a brief, like here, yeah. here's the information that you need. And if I were to go back to school for this completely fresh, knowing what I was getting myself into, I would love it if a teacher would would kind of switch it up for me and do uh, one of two things. They could they could come in as a client, and then the students kind of sit around them and like they're in a client meeting or a kickoff, ask them questions, get to learn more about them, and then go off on their own to mm -hmm. place that, um, or to come in as a client who says they want one thing while knowing that they need another. So like as a teacher, you're like, I'm, I'm going to give them the wrong information. I want to see who's going to catch on here um, and kind of make that like a learning. Like I know I said this, but as you design it, are you noticing that these problems are arising? That's, that's brilliant. Cause I've never, I've, I, I've, I know that, that, you know, the client doesn't always know what they need. Yeah. <laughs> but I never thought about actually tricking the students into like telling them the wrong thing and seeing if they figure out like wait a minute this doesn't add up. Yeah. So that's I'm I'm definitely going to uh, try that in the in the next semester. Let me know uh, how it goes. <laughs> yeah, hopefully I, I I pull it off well. Um so I, oh, I just lost what I was originally um thinking about when you were 
when you were talking, but to go back to some of the earlier questions um, was, so you also received a minor in English writing with a concentration in creative writing. Yes. How helpful has that been in, um, in your day-to-day working life? <laughs> I'm finding it more and more helpful now as I've moved away from working in studios that just produce. Yeah. Right? Because you just produce and you hand off to the client and that's kind of the end of the relationship. Moving more into the innovation and like strategy part of it where you're trying to build a relationship with someone, you're trying to, to solve problems as they come up for them. And the way that you do that, if you're weaving in what users are saying or what researchers are finding or what you're finding, you have to be able to tell that in a, uh, as a story. Mm-hmm. And that's, <laughs> that's where my creative writing comes in. It's really funny this is coming up because I've actually been spending a lot of my time editing things mm-hmm. on my current projects. Uh, so it, it's really come into handy um, because you have to be able to write for different audiences. Sometimes the audience you're speaking to knows, you know, the technical jargon, you know, of our world. Uh, sometimes they have absolutely no idea. So, like, how do I how do I explain why this one thing is not going to work without saying any technical words? Yeah. Um, do you have so? You know, as part of the job of being a uh, professor, you also have to do advising and students will always ask, you know, like, what kind of electives should I take? Is there any kind of writing classes that you think that would pop in your mind? Like, oh, you should take this kind of, whether it's creative writing, whether it's heck poetry, I have no idea. Is there any that you think that you would recommend to somebody who wants to practice uh, that? I'm so I'm so torn. I because I love I love my creative writing background, um, and I chose it specifically because I love I love writing uh, fictional things. I had absolutely no interest in non-fictional work mm-hmm. uh, or writing it. I love reading it, but writing it, I'm like ah. Eh. But now I see. Um, I would say if you're a designer with a lot of with a with interest in research, I really think nonfiction a nonfiction writing course would really work for you because you're you're translating you know facts and actual feedback into a story versus fictional which is what <laughs> what I'm using which is not to make up stories but to to tell a story that kind of like gives emotion right mm-hmm. you want to get people excited and those things aren't aren't mutually exclusive but um, I, I definitely see if I if I was more interested in what the researchers were doing I'd probably want to write closer to how they describe things, and I feel like creative writing wouldn't be able to help me do that as well as how I would organize a story if I was writing it um, in a nonfiction way. All right, so we're we're getting close on time, so I'm going to ask two more um, questions, and the first one's uh, I, I remembered my original question that I was trying to stumble through earlier. You mentioned drawing and iteration. And I, I, there's not an educator out there who will say that that's not super important. But for whatever reason, we can't get students. They want to do one thing and be done. There's <laughs> we're not we're doing a bad job of fostering exploration. Yeah. Um. So obviously you had it naturally, but for those that don't, I mean, do you have any suggestions on? 
how to get students to do it more, or maybe, you know, you can articulate why it's so important. So sure. I can tell the students. I'm, I'm going to get uh, a little bit philosophical on you. Yeah. Great. Uh, I, so if you're going to be spending time on something, time is a finite resource. Mm -hmm. So why spend more time on something than you need to? Especially when you're trying to solve a problem and there's like another way you can do it to, to solve it a little bit quicker. And sketching will allow you to do that because I, and this sketching is something that I would gravitate toward naturally, but even I still find myself thinking like, oh, maybe I should just pop into Illustrator really quick and, and do something. And sometimes you do have to take key elements and kind of design them out, but you get sucked into the computer. It's so easy because the possibilities are endless. And I know when I do that and it's too early in the process, I start thinking about things like color. I'm unhappy with the font that I'm using to quickly mock this thing up. Uh, I'm thinking about um, like pictures and stock photos. And I start getting really deep into the woods. And really the only thing I need to answer for step one is where does information go and how does it look? Um, can you... So I, in the past, I've asked students to make wireframes. So uh, wireframes, though, are different than... Wireframes are the placement of the information to working through the hierarchy of the information. They're not working through the layout or the design. Well, they're, I guess they're... A little bit layout. Yeah. I mean, but do you... So do you see a difference between the two? Like Between, between wireframes and... Like sketching um, for visual. Oh, so... So I, I will use sketches to very quickly kind of run through some, well, to run through some ideas pretty quickly uh, and to really kind of reach out with all my potential, but not on the computer. Because okay. I can do, I can, you can always do that much quicker with your pen to a paper. It's going to be sloppy, it's going to be messy, but as long as it's in a language that you understand, then that's completely helpful. Because by the time I'm done doing that, I've nixed off more than half of those ideas. And so that's, that's time I don't have to waste putting on the computer, you know, these designs that I know aren't going to work because I've, I've figured out like, oh, this actually won't translate well to moving the devices or like, uh, this will only work on this page and not for other ones. I, it's, sketching should be a way to think through hmm. the, the process or think through the question or the idea. And then when you move to the computer, you're refining that down even more. So it's like a big triangle, right? You start with a thousand things and you're just you're whittling yourself down to one. And as you're doing that, you kind of up the tools that you're using. So you start with sketching, you move to wireframing, you move to light, lightly designed wireframes, you move to prototypes, you move to code, you bump yourself back if you need to, and you just you keep moving in that way. All for for me, it's all in the name of of saving time, which is very precious. Yeah, no, and and I think that's a perfect way to to explain it to somebody. Is like, well, why do I have to do fifty sketches? Because you could do fifty sketches now, or you could do you could spend a week on a really tight comp and then end up realizing it was the wrong solution. Yeah, and then spend another week going at it again, and you could be wrong a third, you know, a second or a third time. Where, yeah, it's, I, I think that's a, an amazing way to ex explain it to students. Just, it's, yeah. a t it's a, it's a, you're thinking through your pencil and you're just saving yourself time. 
Um, so, uh, Sabella, before I let you go, is there anything that you are working on that you would like to share or something that you want to promote? Oh, man, I have so <laughs> I have so many work in progress projects. Sure. That I, I, I can't. I can't, I have nothing to show yet, but a lot of it, so um, my interest now, I've been focusing for so many years um, on, you know, learning, I'm, I'm very skills focused, I am still am very skills focused, especially when it comes to development, there's a lot that I, I want to learn, and that keeps me glued to my screen at work, and then it keeps me glued to my screen when I'm at home, so I'm, I'm starting these new projects where I'm trying to get back to traditional artwork. I think it's really, people think left, right brain, they think art and math, and for me, that that's true, but I also think it's it's coding, and it's work on the computer, and it's physical physical work on the other side. I kind of want to mu- like work this muscle a little bit on the other side, where I'm getting more tactile. Um, and oh, I lose those skills. So I will have <laughs> I will have more, but um, I'll be announcing them as they finish or publicizing them uh, on my Twitter. Uh, my my Twitter handle is Mackinrow, which is uh, M A C A N D R O W. And so I'm I'm hoping to have some some things too. I'm I'm working on a message behind behind some things that's becoming more important to me as I continue this career. Um, so you'll see some mix of digital work and some maybe some physical collage work or, or other things. I'm not quite sure yet, but I'm excited. No, I'm excited to see that. I mean, that was one of my, an old prof- a professor of mine. That's one thing they did was like, we, we worked traditional paint, whatever, you know, just traditional um, skills and mediums. And then we made them digital. And then we took that digital and then we went painted on those and then brought them <laughs> back in and yeah. just worked back and forth. It was, so it, it was fun. Yeah. yeah definitely fun. All right, so that's all we have time for today on episode 25 of Design EDU Today. I want to thank today's guest, Sabella Flagg, for being so generous with her time. I want to thank the audience for listening, and I want to thank the Design EDU Today hosting sponsor, DigitalOcean, and CDN sponsor, Fastly, for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. Finally, I want to thank the AIGA, and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. If you want to discover more about the Design EDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit us on the web at designedu.today. You can follow us on Twitter at designedu today, like our Facebook page, or subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes or Google Play Store. Thank you for listening to Design EDU Today.